is a little different because we, we, we are still in our series in First John. And as I said last week, uh, it's developing now and getting in. I haven't said hello to Maddie today. Hey, Maddie. <laughs> but uh, it's getting into the Antichrist, and I want to make sure to be able to treat that with all of the treatment that it needs in time. But given the message uh, that was sent out this week, and again, if you want to know what that is, feel free to text me and I'll, I'll text it to you or email it to you. But um, I cannot escape our desperate need for heaven-sent revival in our churches. And when I say that, I'm not just talking about Northridge. I'm talking about the entire Western Hemisphere of churches. Because they are the, the 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 Western realm of peoples are sick, and the churches in them are are struggling at best, uh, powerless, and the only thing that's going to change it is God coming down in our midst. How does that happen? It happens through brokenness. It happens through humility. It happens through desperation. I, have a, I actually have a slideshow today. I, I, I'm, I'm baffled. I might use it. I might not. I don't know. It's funny how God will put things in your, in your path for what to say. I had a friend in Oklahoma who's in a town of 600 has three Baptist churches, has one Church of Christ, has one Lutheran church, has one Methodist church. And I'm sure there's some more. And that's just in town. That doesn't include the country. And of course, you all all know how that goes. Well, they're fighting. They are fighting. I mean, they are fighting. And there's a vicious rumor running around. He called me all upset because uh, the rumor is now that there was a faction of his church that left they started a new church in town. Now they're going to they're going to they're going to they're going to steal their building, and they're going to run everybody out. And the Christian culture is just sick. So he was crying as a pastor. Doesn't know what to do. I call him Brother Yo Yo because. One Sunday, we had the best sermon. We had the best service today. We actually had someone come up and pray. Now, you have to understand what I'm saying about that. It shouldn't be uncommon to have Christians pray at church, but for him. But then the next Sunday, so he's up, and then he's down. Problem is, I'm a yo-yo too. Everybody in ministry, I think, are yo-yos to some degree. Because there's just very little in the way of life and vigor and enthusiasm and desperation and passion. I was reading, I was just thinking as we were singing, and you don't have to turn here, but in Isaiah chapter 56, that says the Lord as he's talking about the salvation of the Gentiles. Keep justice and do righteousness for my salvation is about to come. Oh man. And my righteousness 
to be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who lays hold on it, who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Now there's a lot to preach right there. He writes, Do not let the son of the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord speak, saying, The Lord has utterly separated me as a Gentile from his people. Nor let the eunuch say, Here I am, a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose, this is key words, and choose what pleases me and hold fast my covenant. Even to them, I will give in my house and within my walls a place and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name and they shall not be cut off. That's to you and I people. And also it's he right. God is saying also the sons of the foreigner who joins themselves to the Lord. To serve him. And to love the name of the Lord, to be His servants, everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant, even them I will bring to my holy mountain. What in the world does a holy mountain look like? Good. He says, and I will make them joyful. And this is key, what I'm about to read. And I will make them joyful in my house of prayer. What? The, their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel says, Yet I will gather to him others besides those who are gathered to him. And of course, again, that's a reassurance to us who are not of Jewish lineage, but are Gentiles after saving faith of Christ. A lot of things happening here in this passage. But my house shall be called a house of prayer. When Jesus ran out the money changers in the temple, what did he say to them? My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. How did they do that? You say, well, they sold stuff in it. Yeah, that's, that's how they played it out. But how did they really do that? They stopped regarding God as holy. They stopped regarding the Sabbath as set apart. It became a business. It became what you do. It became something by rote. It became just routine. And if there's ever been a death nail to the American church, it is this in, in, this, in this area of seeing God and service to God as Routine. Why? How did it happen? It surely didn't start off that way. Some of you would be well advised to go and read your early 
American history. Just to remind yourself of why this nation even began to be formed. A place where we could worship, live free, and worship God without the persecution. To make God the fabric of a, of a culture. It's not a theocracy as it was, it was not a, an intentional theocracy, but, but you would have a hard time convincing me that the idea of, of how America began was sort of what you might call an unofficial, an unofficial, perhaps even passive theocracy. In that, they desperately desired that God was the center of the town square. That's why in all of the old cities, in the old towns, in the old pictures, the very first building to be built is church. And consequently, isn't it interesting that the very first place to hold the school class was in the church? That's right. That the primers used to help the students learn to read was the Bible. That's right. Church was not just a spectator sport in those days. It was an all-inclusive event by God's people coming together, not only to sing, but to sing. And not only for the preacher to preach, because that man preached for hours. And then they'd break and they'd eat. And then they'd come back for more. And they would pray. And they'd seek God. And they would pray. They would be at the altar and they would pray and they would preach and they would sing and then they would go home and they'd work their farms and their jobs and whatever it is they did and they would raise their family in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. And that's how it started. And was it, uh, was it perfect? No, because we're people. Have you seen us? But God was the center of it all. Everything I've read and everything I've studied and I have never studied more or read more than I have in the past four and a half, five years, ever. Volumes and volumes upon this theme to answer this question. Why is the church in America so powerless today? Because we are not a praying church. Now, you'll say, some of you may raise your eyes at me and you go, hey buddy, did JT not just pray? Did Rich just not get up here and pray? Oh, they did, sure, they did. But that's the hard thing with English language. Syntax makes a difference. Context makes a difference. And when I say what I'm saying, imagine this. There was a day and it's been about 100 years ago now, probably 75, where God's churches, when they come together, they, they had special services where they prayed. And these prayer meetings, as you've heard them termed, weren't stale, 
awkward, like everyone sitting in their underwear services. Because that's how we treat them. These were alive, vibrant, connecting times. There would be huddles. You've heard the term holy huddle. Well, that wasn't always a derogatory term. It was actually meant when there would be huddles of people in those prayer meetings and even in the services as they erupted into spontaneous times of prayer where groups were gathered and they would pray and they would and they would they would seek God they would supplicate which is there's praying and then there's supplicating right that's where you you're just you're on your face before God for him to move in in someone's life they were interceding for lost loved ones uh, they were praying for God because you know they just didn't have Costco back then so God please bring the rain or we're starving there was a there was a connection between the people and God's creation we've forgotten actually do you know that the majority of young people today believe that food comes from the grocery store out of a can or out of a bag they don't know where their food comes from and when you get close to understanding where your food comes from you understand your need for god just like i'm going to make a statement now if it does not snow this winter up in those mountains we are going to be in a world of hurt here such as you've not seen i think for a long long time and other places in the United States bear the same way. Why? Why is this? Because we've forgotten who holds us. We're advanced. God's people are God's chosen means on the earth today to declare His praises and to claim His victories. And we do it by worshiping, we do it by preaching, and we do it by praying. And we are so uncomfortable with the latter. We don't know how to engage. Uh, I've, I've dealt with some situations where I've, I've known of men and women who have had a very casual, what I would call a normal view of prayer in our day. Because I just want you to know for the record, we are abnormal. But it's the new normal. They, they have a casual, yeah, I know prayer's important, yeah, all that. But you give them a hardship that really takes them down. Death of a child, loss of a loved one. Suddenly, they can't pray enough. Suddenly, they can't get low enough, often enough, or pray enough for God, for God to move because they know that unless God does it, it will not happen. There's nothing can be said. There's nothing, can, there's nothing more can be done. 
God has to touch down on earth in that situation and they know that I, I must, I can't help it. I am propelled to pray, to pour out my soul. I, I am here, God, again, because this is my, this is my longing. This is my, this is my very existence in this moment. Unless you do this, I die. And they do that. And then sometimes God oftentimes graciously answers. Do you know what happens to that kind of praying after that? Gone. Because that's how we are. I wondered in all of this, what if we began to pray with that same amount of fervor and that same amount of desperation and that same amount of intensity for God Himself? Not a problem. Not a solution. But for God Himself. What if we began to beseech the Lord like that just for God Himself? I think it would change everything. Guys, uh, we are literally today at a place in history for Christianity, and I'm speaking in the Western Hemisphere, bring it down to, to America and then bring it down to Jerome if you want, where we are literally in a place where nothing is going to change our plight except a mighty move of God In that message that I sent out this week by uh, J. Edwin Orr, he described revival, real revival, not counterfeit goofiness, but real revival. This is incredible what he called it. He called it, man, my thoughts. Oh, he said revival is like judgment day. It's like, whoa. Because, you know, when we talk about judgment day, we're thinking God's wrath upon the ungodly. But if you take that same amount of intensity and you put it in the positive upon God's grace being poured out in intensity upon his people, J. Renoir said it's like God's judgment day for his people. He's pouring out his presence he's pouring out his mercy he's pouring out restoration of broken relationships he's pouring out the and healing the diseased and 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 backslidden hearts he's he's pouring out like rain now do you do we want that some those of you who've called me or texted me this week, you've listened to the sermon and I've been very intrigued to hear what you've had to say and you've all been taken by many aspects of it. But I've also asked you one question in, in return. I said, now how would you correlate that message to Northridge today? And here's pretty much the response that I got from everybody. And it's a true response. We, we're a good church 
We got a lot of loving people. And we're doing all right. But we're nowhere near that. We're nowhere near that. What is that then? That where you come to the point where you realize this is it. We just need God. For what? To to revive our souls. To pour out in power. To awaken the dead. To to break stony hearts and give them a heart of flesh. To to cause us to, to, to emanate that reality of what we call the Christ life. To stir in us a heart for prayer that prays with passion and not watching the clock. Whether it's at church or at home, we just are drawn to our knees because we have to live and we're not like that. When we begin to see God move in people's lives in extraordinary ways because we've assaulted them with the tow missiles of heaven and it's just been right into their hearts and God is moving in them and they're having dreams or perhaps they're just getting up with the fear of God on their life and they don't know why and they're trembling and they're saying, can you tell me how I can, I can get right with God because I'm scared. You say you should be scared, but I want to tell you how, and I can tell you how to know Jesus, and I can tell you that God is, is dealing with you, and you should be so grateful. Because, but, but, that can't, that won't happen. It, it's, it's us. So with that being said, We have to heal our, we have to heal and come to grips with, with what we view prayer to be. And I really wish there were another word for it, as I've said this before. It's just so light of a word. Oh, I'll pray about that, right? I'll pray about that. I was thinking the other day, here's, here's how I would like for us to begin to say, when I say the word pray, I want you to imagine a red button on a console. And I want you to imagine a, digital, a digitized map of the world. And I want you to imagine on that map are these glowing, kind of pulsating red circles all over it. And behind those red circles indicate nuclear Warheads underground, ready to go off. And you have the button. They're all of them. How much power is that? I'm not really quite sure. But all of the nuclear warheads that are primed and ready to go right now, I want you to imagine them all, and you have the button. And on that button, it says, prayer, push here. Do you realize what you're doing when you pray? All power has been given to Jesus. All authority. Because when we pray, God moves. But sometimes we only pray and God doesn't move. And I think the difference is in how you view what you're doing.
I see it as pushing a nuclear button. So for me now, when I begin to pray, I've been saying, okay, Lord, I want to go nuclear on this person. And I, I bring heaven and earth in the name of God Almighty and all His grace and sovereignty to bear against this person. How would you like that? A little tough. And that's how we begin to see prayer. 